For our scripture reading, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2. This morning's sermon text will be Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. If you're using a pew Bible, that can be found on page 1,154. Let us now hear God's word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was, running, I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. As for the reading of God's word, may add his blessing upon the preaching and teaching of it. Congregation of Christ, in a book called Good Leaders Ask Great Questions, the author talks about leaders and the ways in which they ask questions in order to grow as a leader. If you're a leader, you must learn how to ask good questions, great questions. Not for the sake of asking questions to gain knowledge, but to grow as a person, to grow as a leader for the well-being of himself or herself and the other party. Well, the author of the book, recalls a time when someone asked him a question. And the question that was posed to him was this. Before you attempt to set things right, make sure that you see things right. What are you seeing, he was asked. I'm going to read that again because it's very, very good and I believe profound. Before you attempt to set things right, make sure that you see things right. What things do we need to see right in the gospel in order to set things right in the course of our lives, in the course of ministry, in the life of the church? Before I set things right in my life, what do I need to see? Where are my blind spots? What am I missing? Am I missing something? 
do I see the gospel right as recorded in the Word of God, the Bible? The Apostle Paul set things right in the course of his apostolic ministry, particularly to the nations, the Gentiles, because he saw things right. He saw things right. He received a revelation from Jesus Christ in chapter 1. He didn't consult with anyone at that time. He went immediately into Arabia, then he went to Damascus, and then after three years he went to Jerusalem, where he met a few leading men at that time. So the revelation of Jesus Christ revealed to him the course of ministry that he was called to, revealed to him the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But what's going on here in this text, in chapter 2, verses 1 and following? At chapter 2, verse 1, look with me in your Bible. He says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. There is some debate regarding which visit to Jerusalem this was. There are a few times that Paul and Barnabas visited Jerusalem. For example, many interpreters believe that the revelation Paul received was from Acts chapter 11, when the prophet Agabus came from Jerusalem to Antioch and spoke of a famine that was to come. And so the Gentile Christians gathered up financial aid, and they appointed Paul and Barnabas to take this aid and bring it up to Jerusalem. Notice, when they talk about going to Jerusalem, you're always going up. They went up to Jerusalem. When you leave Jerusalem, you're always going down. I don't care if you're north, north, south, east, west. You're going up to Jerusalem, Mount Zion. And so, in Acts chapter 11, they send Paul and Barnabas to deliver to the elders this financial aid. Imagine that, a Gentile church ministering to and supporting a Jewish church in those early days of the early church. The gospel knows no bounds. This church is supporting the Jewish church regardless of ethnicity, nationality, color, or social status. They are the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul and Barnabas are sent to Jerusalem. But other interpreters believe that our passage, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, speak of a time when Paul and Barnabas went there during the Jerusalem council when that was convened. Acts chapter 15. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. It's not of utmost importance to determine when they went up, but rather why they went up. What was the important thing that was taking place while they were there in Jerusalem? And Paul says, I went up because of a revelation, and here we go, and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And so we turn now to the first point. Paul consults men of influence. Yes, he had the gospel revealed to him by Jesus Christ himself. But here he goes to set before the apostles seeking confirmation. 
from them. Who were these men of influence? Well, if you look at verse 6 with me. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem influential add nothing to me. And then he goes on to talk about Peter, Cephas, and John, who were known as pillars in the church, verse 9. And Paul consults privately these men of influence. Why does he privately consult these men when he already stated in chapter 1 that he received a revelation from Christ? Isn't that good enough? That he didn't receive the gospel of God's grace from any man, nor is it the invention of any man, but he received divine revelation from God the Son himself. What's going on here? Why does he need to consult and seek confirmation from these men of influence? But one of the questions we need to ask this, Paul was given this apostolic ministry. He was given revelation from Christ himself. And he's ministering among the Gentiles, but he was constantly bombarded by those who were called Jew, Judaizers, those who were of the Jewish faith and converted, quote-unquote, converted to Christianity, and they brought in a gospel contrary to the one Paul was preaching. They were calling Gentiles to live like Jews. And so Paul goes to consult with these men of influence. Is he missing something? Does he see things rightly before he sets things rightly? Does he see things rightly? Accountability. Accountability in the church. We have it as early as the first century Christians. Christian local churches aren't lone rangers. They're, independent. They're not independent. They belong to the body of Christ. And therefore there's accountability between leaders. Paul preached a law-free gospel. And how does this law-free gospel change the way a culture or society lives the Christian life in their respective lands. How are the people in Antioch, the Christians in Antioch, how are the Christians in DeMont to live? If we had people coming here and saying we had to live a certain way, a certain way according to their society and culture and their practices, how would we respond? Paul preached a law-free gospel. Sinners are saved by God's grace and not by works of the law, not by the customs of Moses. Everyone is a sinner before God. Paul argues in Romans and many places elsewhere. And therefore, everyone deserves divine wrath. And God, who is rich in mercy, made dead sinners alive in Christ by the Spirit. The Spirit makes the sinner free. The spiritually dead are given spiritual life.
The spiritually enslaved are spiritually set free. Those who once con- are, were condemned are now made right. And the customs of Moses, the laws of Moses, cannot make a person right. Only the gospel of grace makes us right with God. And so Paul consults with the men of influence, seeking their conversation. Conver- for the sake of the truth of the gospel and its preservation. Its preservation. Paul doesn't want to run the course of his ministry in vain because he was teaching the Gentiles that it is not necessary to practice Jewish customs. Do not taste. Do not handle. Don't do this. Do this. He was teaching the Gentiles that it was not necessary to practice the Jewish customs of the Old Covenant and identify with the Jewish people in order to be saved. That's the important point that Paul is starting to unpack as he gets to his arguments more fully in the defense of the gospel in subsequent chapters. See, circumcision, dietary laws, all those things were part of the Jewish national identity. In fact, you look at Nazi Germany. How did they determine who the Jews were, the Nazis? What did they do? They looked for their customs, their circumcision. They looked at all those things that identified this people group with the Jewish nation. We know of the grotesque evil that happened there, the abomination of the Nazis. The truth of the gospel is preserved when leaders and churches consult with one another. If you want to set things right, you must see things right. And iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Paul humbly consults with men of influence. Secondly, the truth conquers in the face of opposition. Look with me in your Bible again, verse 3. This seems somewhat abrupt in his flow of thought. He says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he himself was a Greek. That is, Titus wasn't forced to be circumcised by the men of influence. Then at verse 4, he says, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, notice false brothers, secretly brought in, stealthfully brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. It was while Paul was consulting with these men of influence that these false brothers came in. And these men of influence agreed that Titus shouldn't be circumcised, so they didn't force him to be circumcised. But other brothers came in, false brothers, that is, who come in to burden people Not with a law-free gospel, but a gospel plus law. A gospel plus law. That is, they added works to the Christian faith. They added works to Christ. Don't taste, don't touch, don't handle. 
do this, don't do this. And to concede to their demands would result in submission and slavery once again to the shadows and types of the old covenant, which really pointed to who? To Jesus. To Jesus, because through faith in Jesus, we are made inwardly clean. We are made righteous before God. Those old covenant types and shadows pointed to a cleanliness of the heart. Through the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Dietary laws, circumcision, and other customs do not draw us close to God. You know, in this season, we call it Lent. And there are some traditions who practice Lent, abstaining from certain food, drink, or other things. They fast from certain things to draw closer to God. Now, it is true, you can, we fast as Christians. You can fast from certain things. But if you do it, if you do it to be made right with God or to earn God's favor, then that's a gospel plus law. That is gospel plus law. No one can gain life and righteousness through the law and the customs of Moses. No one can be spiritually set free from the bondage of sin by or through the law. These false brothers come in opposing the message of the gospel of grace. And Paul and the others stand firm. They will not have it. They did not yield in submission even for a moment. I love that. If you have your Bibles, even for a moment, write it, underline it. Because what does that tell us? That the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ, the law-free gospel, so gripped them that they knew that there was no other gospel than the one given to Paul and the apostles and prophets than the one Jesus gives. Literally, literally, we can say that they did not become weak in submission. That word there, yield, can also give the connotation of weakness. They were not weak men. They were strong men. Strong men of faith filled with the Spirit. And they did not submit to the opposition. But notice what Paul says. Look with me in your Bible. He says that to them we did not yield, verse 5, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. For you. He doesn't say for ourselves. For you. Why is that important? You see, I started off about the you know, question answering, asking great questions. When you study the Bible, when you want to interpret the Bible, you have to ask the Bible great questions. You have to ask the Bible questions. And in doing so, you're asking God questions. <laughs> God, what am, I, what am I not seeing here? What do I need to see? Ask questions of your Bible when you're, when you're wanting to interpret. And so when I came, I, I'm like, for you, why? Why that preposition? For you. 
so that the truth of the gospel is preserved in Antioch and every generation in Antioch after the present generation that Paul's speaking to. Paul says to the Galatians that they did not yield so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for them. Leaders are shepherds. They serve you on behalf of Christ Jesus the head to maintain the purity of doctrine and life. And so Paul did not yield in submission because it was about the truth of the gospel. And if, you, if we yield in submission and embrace what the false brothers are teaching, whatever false doctrine is being preached or taught and lived, then we are doing a disservice to you. And subsequent generations begin to lose the truth of the gospel. You may remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, when he tells this young man, Timothy, a pastor, keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Now listen, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Because if he didn't persist in it, if he didn't hold on and preserve the truth of the gospel, his hearers, those whom he's speaking to, are in jeopardy. Many of you remember the famous words of Ronald Reagan when he once said this, and I'll quote him, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. He said, we didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It's pretty good. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was once like in the United States where men were free. And I dare to say the same could be said in the church. Right? One generation away. And many of you have seen that. Many of you have seen that. What happens when leaders buy into and give way to gospel plus law? Well, there is no gospel at all. And Christ died needlessly. If we have to add to our salvation. Christians lose hope in the truth of the gospel and we begin to look to ourselves and our own works and our own righteousness before God. Now, listen carefully. Please listen well. We can believe wholeheartedly, firmly, that I am righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. By his righteousness, I am made righteous. I can believe it. But let me ask you a question. How many of you struggle with it? How many of you think, well, is it real things? We don't have churches being attacked in that way false brothers coming in that way. It looks a little differently. Same idea, adding to, but what is being added or taken away today? There are groups that are fundamentalists who add rules and regulations to the gospel. They take matters of Christian liberty and make it into law. Don't drink, don't dance, don't dress 
in a certain way, and obviously promiscuous dressing is wrong, young people. But there's a certain dress code that makes you a Christian. Oh yeah, that's out there. You look this way. You talk this way. And then you hit the opposite extreme where there are those who are antinomian or against law. Since we've been free, a law-free gospel, therefore the law is not relevant anymore. Well, that's not true either. Because we know from Scripture, Paul says, what shall we say then, after he just previously talked about a law-free gospel that we're saved by grace alone, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Yes, we're not saved by the law. We are saved by grace. But by the Spirit, we walk in new obedience to the law, to God, by loving him and loving his commandments. And they don't become burdensome Paul's preaching of the gospel was a law-free gospel, but it was the gospel of grace that wasn't a license to practice and affirm lawlessness. And so what does it look like even more today when false brothers who slip in to churches and push the church to yield into submission to certain ideologies and philosophies who come in to push a woke agenda, who come in to push a transgender ideology, who come in to push homosexuality, and the permissibility of it, to come in to, per, uh, to promote a sexual promiscuity and saying it's okay. It's okay to live together before marriage. It's okay to, to sleep in the same room before marriage. Let's welcome everyone into the membership of Christ church at the expense of what? Truth. The truth of the gospel. They welcome everyone into the membership of Christ's church at the expense of the truth about sin, repentance and faith toward God, sanctification. Yes, as a church, we are called to welcome everyone to worship with us. But I'm talking about into the membership of the church, into the life of the church, being united to Christ and his saving work. Of course, we welcome sinners to come. We are sinners. We come. We welcome sinners of all stripes to come and hear Christ crucified and risen. But to be a partaker of the fellowship, a member of the church, we are called to deny ourselves, deny sin, reject sin, repent of sin in all its forms, and turn to Christ. wise pastor I knew was speaking to a man who wanted to become a member of the church and he was a practicing homosexual and in the conversation this man wanted to become a member of the church and I was in on the conversation with the pastor and the pastor beautifully explained to him we love you, we're glad you're here we love that you're here 
We love that you're hearing the word of God. We love that you're among the people of God here, talking, fellow, you know, fellowshipping in a way, getting to know us. But to join the church means to become a member of Christ and his body. And that means turning away from the sin of homosexuality. The pastor had to do the right biblical thing. And the interesting thing is that the pastor was part of a greater body of churches that was accepting homosexual membership. The same can be said true of any other sin. What do we do with it? Paul preached a law-free gospel, but the gospel of grace wasn't a license to practice and affirm lawlessness. Lastly, the pillars confirm the apostles' gospel and ministry. Verse 6, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. The, apostles, the pillars, the men of influence, didn't add to Paul's gospel. That's what it means by adding nothing to me. They were on the same page. They didn't add any other gospel news to Paul. They approved and confirmed what Paul was teaching. The Holy Spirit worked repentance and faith in the Gentiles, just as he did with the believing Jews. He worked faith and repentance in the Gentiles, just as he did in the believing Jews. And after they confirmed Paul's gospel and ministry, the apostles, the pillars, said, we will divvy up responsibility. You will take the gospel to the nations, the Gentiles, the Greeks, and we will bring it to the Jews. And they gave notice, the right hand of fellowship, which is a symbol, a sign of mutual fellowship, a sign of unity among the brothers, among the churches, in both doctrine and life. They found unity in doctrine, in life, in practice. The nations are not to conform to the customs and laws of the Jewish nations in order to be identified as the people of God. And the Hebrew Christians at times, at times we notice in the Bible that there was a practice of the Old Covenant. Paul himself took vows, which was probably the Nazarite vow. They too celebrated certain days as Christians within the Jewish calendar. But the one thing that united them was the cross of Jesus Christ that unites both Jew and Gentile into one body. It is the cross that unites us with every other people group who belong to the people of God. Remember Revelation 5, that by his blood he purchased, redeemed from every tribe, tongue, and nation a people for himself. And we belong to that greater body where Christ is the head of the church. 
And as they were going to part ways, Paul says that the pillars asked them that they remember the poor, which was the very thing he was eager to do. This law-free gospel moves Christians, drives Christians, leads Christians to faithful, loving expression of our faith. And to show love and, and, and charity to the poor really shows the love and charity of Christ for poor sinners. As Psalm 41 says, Blessed is the one who considers the poor in the day of trouble. The Lord delivers him. The church is the place that unites both Jew and Greek, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free into the one body of Christ. And this one body of Christ is to preserve the gospel, the truth of the gospel, regardless of the cost of our physical lives. And we are to express our faith in the way in which we show love toward our neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. The law-free gospel moves us in that direction. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we pray, O oh Lord, that we would be a people gripped by the truth of the gospel. That we, O oh Lord, would not stray to the right or to the left, but be centered upon the living word of God. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would forgive us if we personally have added to the gospel of grace. Forgive us, O oh Lord, if we think that we have to earn your favor. That we might have to add to that which Christ has already purchased and attained. Father, teach us daily what it means to deny self so that we may live. Teach us daily what it means to take up our cross and follow you. Teach us what it means daily, what it means that Christ paid it all. And that through faith in him, we have been made righteous. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, the truth of the gospel recorded and preserved in the word of God so that the word of God would be proclaimed to all nations, all peoples everywhere. And that our interpretation of Holy Scripture would be led by the Spirit and true to the divine word and that we would not stray from proper interpretation and understanding of the truth of the gospel. Oh, Father, we pray for the leaders of this church, for the leaders of the Federation of Churches and the URCNA. We pray for denominations near and far that the gospel of truth would go forth. Even despite the opposition, despite the attacks, despite the slipperiness of Satan, seeking someone to devour in their thought life, 
in their theological life and in their Christian living. Oh, Father, keep us from the evil one. Protect us, we pray. And may we look to Christ, the one who has conquered all. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.